We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 today. It's printed in your worship guide. There are Bibles back there if you don't have one as well. I saw a meme this week. Sent it to Allison on Instagram. You know, we're the meme where you send each other memes back and forth. But uh, it said, uh, The Matrix described 1999 as the peak of human civilization. And I laughed because obviously that would not age well. But then the next 23 years happened. And now I'm like, yeah, okay. Maybe the machines had a point. Maybe you resonate with that a little bit. It's definitely a different world than 23 years ago. This also coincides with what uh, Jim Davis and Michael Graham write in their book, The Great Dechurching. There they point out that we're currently experiencing the biggest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. That 40 million adults in America who used to belong to the church have left it. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the people who came into it during both Great Awakenings and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. And as always, there are cultural shifts that have come along with it and moral shifts that have happened. And many of you, especially if you've been in the church this whole time, you feel this. You might be kind of afraid or worried or anxious about what you're seeing happen, where you see immorality celebrated in ways that you haven't experienced before, at least not here, where instead of the average person believing in God and having some respect for God's word, um, maybe they don't acknowledge it anymore. Right? Maybe home doesn't quite feel like home the way it used to. Hopefully, as we've been going through Daniel, you're seeing that this actually isn't our home, that we're citizens of heaven, that we're exiles here, as the New Testament calls us, that the U.S. isn't the nation of God, where God is our king. We have presidents. We have Congress. It's always been a pluralistic society yet one that has been heavily influenced by Christianity. And that's something we can praise God and give him thanks for. But that also doesn't mean these shifts don't happen, that things don't change. And our chapter this morning might actually fit really well with where we're at in society right now. Ours comes on the heels of um, 23 years since the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. Same time span. And we've seen, as we've gone through the book so far, God has been at work in Nebuchadnezzar over 40 years, from the beginning to his death, to what we saw in the last chapter, working on him by his grace, through different visions, through the fiery furnace, God has been showing Nebuchadnezzar that he is the true and living God, the one who truly rules the kingdoms of men. And we've seen Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were actually elevated to Positions of influence, positions of some power. We had a pagan king blessing the God of Israel and making a decree that no one could say anything bad about him or they get their limbs torn off, right? That's one of his things that he does. Can you imagine that? A pagan king saying it's illegal to make fun of the God of Egypt or God of Israel. And that's where we were. Then last chapter, God's kingship and his righteousness were emphasized as Nebuchadnezzar was actually humbled. God humbles him. And then he looks up to heaven and God restores him 
And then the last words we have before Nebuchadnezzar exits the scene are these. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Then he exits the scene. Others of you um, might say, no, duh, this isn't our home. It's been bad. It's going to be bad. We're cynical. Right? Any real change can happen this side of heaven. Yes, God works in individual hearts. He redeems individuals. But nothing on a grand scale. Nothing like that. Nothing with nations. But does he? As we turn the page, Nebuchadnezzar's dead. And there's a new king. Instead of blessing the king of heaven, he mocks him. Instead of honoring him, he lifts himself up against him. Will God let this stand? Has God forsaken his people in exile? Has he turned a blind eye? Let's look as we look at Daniel 5. The whole chapter is printed in your worship guide. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 6 and then skip to 17 through the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And down to 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he, was, he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And his son, and you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, and gold, 
of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, we're continuing on in the book of Daniel this morning. And the situation has changed in Babylon. They've gone from the high point with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one expanding the kingdom. He's the one conquering nations, even as we hear how he conquered Israel and brought them into exile. But now things are different. Now other nations are trying to conquer them. The, hunted, the hunters have become the prey. Just a couple weeks before our passage, the Babylonians lost a big battle about 50 miles north of Babylon. And now there are enemies encamped outside the walls. And these walls were big. Some ancient historians put them at different places, at 300 feet high and 80 feet thick though most probably wasn't that big. Still not something you could easily penetrate. The Ishtar Gate, one of the gates from the wall, is 50 feet tall. It's actually, you can still see it, it's on display in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Or if you can't go to Berlin, you can Google it and see how small the people are look next to it. All decorated with blue bricks and these idols put inside of it feels safe and protected. They didn't have to worry about being starved out. The river Euphrates ran under the walls, so they had water. They grew their own crops and had animals inside of it. They could sustain themselves in it. So what does this king do? See in verse 1 that in the height of pride and arrogance, he throws a giant party for the thousand mentioned twice. I don't like parties of like more than 20 people, but here's a thousand people there. Right? He thumbs his nose at the enemies camped outside. You can't touch me. There's nothing you can do. But he doesn't leave it with his enemies. See this in verses 2 to 4. He brings the God of Israel into it. The God Nebuchadnezzar eventually praised. He takes the vessels from the temple, from the sanctuary there, these holy vessels that were set apart for righteous use, he takes them out so that they can drink from them. Him, his lords, his wives, even his concubines. And if that weren't enough, as they're doing it, they're raising these glasses to praise other gods. 
gods of gold and silver, bronze, wood, and stone. You can imagine how the first readers would react to this. People of Israel living in exile to hear the sacrilege of these holy vessels being used this way for idolatry itself. Imagine you had Brett Favre's uh, Super Bowl 31 game-worn jersey framed in your den. And you might, because they don't know where it is. Brett Favre doesn't have it. It disappeared. And someone breaks in, takes it, and then uses it to kennel train his new puppy, Sir Walter Payton. (laughs) And then texts you videos of the dog using it. It doesn't even touch it. Doesn't even come close. Can you imagine how angry you would be, though? But it's more than that. It's not only God's vessels being used, but his people are there too. That they're still in exile, that they're still under control. They're subject to whatever this king does. Is God still in charge? Will God respond? Will he let this stand? You might think Nebuchadnezzar was bad enough, but what about this? That might be how some of you feel too. With the changes we see going on in our culture, the things many of us are afraid of, if we're honest, where we see wickedness not just allowed but celebrated. Or maybe you're not usually in church. Maybe you're just here this morning because it's Thanksgiving and you visited family. And you'd rather not be here because you've seen some of the rot in the church itself. Where we've seen sexual abuse scandals, where we've seen cover ups, where we've seen spiritual abuse. Some of you have experienced these things. And the list goes on and on and on among God's very people. And you have the same question Does God see this? Does He care? Is He in control? We get an answer. In verses 5 and 6. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king sees it writing. Yes, God is paying attention. He has not turned a blind eye to pride and idolatry. God will not be mocked. And how does this king react? Just abject fear. He goes white. He's alarmed. Where it says his limbs give way, it's literally the knots of his loins were loosened. Which means he probably went to the bathroom on himself. If you've ever said, scared the crap out of me. It's what happened. His knees knocked together. He is terrified. Yes, God sees what is happening. 
God will not be mocked. This passage is a message of judgment. It's not one we usually want to hear. It's not one I typically want to preach. But I think the reality is that we all actually do long for justice. When we have experienced injustice, we cry out for it. And what we see, especially as we consider these first verses of this chapter, is that those who are experiencing this injustice, those who are suffering at the hands of others, can take comfort that God does still rule from heaven. That he sees, that he knows, that he does pronounce judgment against wickedness. He doesn't just turn a blind eye. It will be exposed and it will be dealt with. And as Nebuchadnezzar said, all his works are right and all his ways are just. And he is able, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. We might not like the timetable on which God is working. We might want to call lightning bolts down right now. Jesus' disciples do it too. (laughs) But we don't see everything that he's doing. All that he's bringing about. But when we know the truth of this, when we see the character of our God, we don't need to be afraid of what's happening in the world. We don't need to be afraid of what's happening in our culture because God still rules from heaven. And he will not be mocked. And if we can see that, then we can take comfort in his sovereignty. We can rest in his righteousness. This is a message of comfort for those who are suffering. But it doesn't stop there. We can't stop with wanting justice to be served to others without ever looking at ourselves even if we're suffering being wronged and being the victim of others sin does not excuse our own but in hearing this pronouncement of judgment against a wicked pagan king it gives us some critical distance that we can hold it out here and look at it it's not quite as close to home We can look at it objectively. Maybe if you were with family this weekend, you see how you enter back into this system with everything that goes with it and you can't differentiate anything. This actually allows us to step out and look at how God's operating and what he's doing and what he's calling us to. It's too late for Belshazzar, but as long as we have breath, it's not too late for us. Because this chapter, even this message of judgment given to Belshazzar isn't for Belshazzar. Right? He's dead at the end, right? We that. that very night, he died. If this hand doesn't come, pronounce this, he still dies. He's gone. The world doesn't have to know, even though it's still God orchestrating it. This message is for his people. It's for how his people would look at this and see this. And how they should respond. 
He gives this message to encourage them, but he also gives this message to lovingly warn them that there are real consequences to sin. And in warning us, he calls us to repentance. Let's see what we can learn from the message to Belshazzar. We'll see it in kind of what he knows about God, what he has done to God, and then what God has done to him. First, what he knows about God. We see this in verse 18. It says, God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Everything Nebuchadnezzar had was from God. It was only because of the greatness God had given him that people feared him. It was only because of the greatness God had given him that he could do what he willed. And when he deals proudly, he finds out that what was given can just as easily be taken. He was humbled. He was brought low until he knew that the Most High God in heaven rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. We've covered this a good bit the last few weeks in chapter 4. This one really goes with chapter 4. You're seeing a lot of the same themes connected through these two passages. But it takes us back a little further than the vision of the last chapter. In that vision, Nebuchadnezzar had grown great, and then the message comes in. But this takes it back to being explicit that God gave him everything that he has. Any greatness he had came from God. That didn't just happen and then he's humbled. God gave him that. And then he elevated himself and was humbled. Do we realize that about ourselves? That anything that we have is given to us by God by his grace. We didn't earn it. We don't have a right to it. God has graciously given it to us. Whatever success you've had, whatever authority, whatever influence, whatever ability, God has given it to you. You have no reason to be proud. You have no reason to boast. Belshazzar knew all of this. This was his father. The term that can mean predecessor or ancestor. He's definitely the predecessor as king and possibly also his grandfather. But the great king who expanded the empire, who built up the city, when all Belshazzar's done is had it shrink and is partying while he's about to lose it. There's this contrast between the two. If God is able to easily bring down the great Nebuchadnezzar, how much easier is it to bring down someone like Belshazzar? And for the people of Israel, as they read this, they're reminded to look back as well. We skip the middle portion there, but the queen mother comes in who recommends Daniel be brought in to interpret this dream. 
And she repeats this as well, your father, your father, your father. What do the Israelites know about God? What bell would this ring for them? He's the God of their fathers. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one who made them a people who brought their fathers out of Egypt. That's the language used in Joshua and Jeremiah. By the finger of God is actually what the Egyptian magicians say. The God who has placed upon them his steadfast love that endures from generation to generation. It's a call to humility, to recognize God's grace, that all you have are good gifts from him. And when we recognize that, we don't have to always need more, to need better. We don't have to compare ourselves to everyone else. If we know we've merely received it, it frees us to actually genuinely love God and give him thanks for it and to generously love others. That's what Belshazzar knows. He's actually held accountable for this. It might seem unfair that Nebuchadnezzar gets 40 years of God intervening, of God working slowly to bring him to this point. And for Belshazzar, it happens like that. But it doesn't happen like that for Belshazzar. He knows all of this. He knows what God has already done. And we can know it too. We've been told. And we're accountable for that. We don't get to say we've never heard. I should get to experience it myself. He has shown us in his word, in his sacraments, who he is and what he has done. How does Belshazzar respond? What does he do? That's the second bit. It's intertwined there in verse 22. And you, his son, again that familial reminder, Belshazzar have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. He knew it, and in knowing it, he should have humbled himself. But instead, he lifts himself up against the Lord of heaven. He's puffed up with pride. And there's escalation here, too, where Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up. Belshazzar lifts up his heart against the Lord. He spits in God's face and mocks him in front of a thousand lords, in front of his wives, in front of his concubines. He brings in these holy vessels and uses them for debauchery. And while they're in the midst of dishonoring the living God, the one who is giving them breath, they use that very breath to praise gods of gold and silver. Gods that cannot hear. Gods that do not speak. Gods that do not know. Gods that are no gods. That do not exist. For the people of Israel, 
as they evaluate themselves, as they distance themselves from this and see what Belshazzar is doing, they have to say, oh, wait, that's us too. As bad as this sounds, this sacrilege that's happening, Israel did just as bad, if not worse, for being God's very people. Just read the conditions in Judah before they're exiled. Cult prostitutes living in the temple. Vessels for other gods in his house. Prophets prophesying by other gods. Just read the end of 2 Kings if you want a picture of how bad it really is. Rampant injustice and idolatry and pride. It's good that we're not as bad as that, right? You hear Dan and I say that, and you know, oh, wait, he's going to say we are, right? Yep. It's easy to say that when we don't have the temple or these holy objects to misuse, isn't it? Where we can draw this line. I didn't do that. That's bad. We read kings and we judge them for it. We read Daniel and we judge him for it. Right? But what about when we consider that we as Christians are now the vessels of God? That we are jars of clay into whom he has poured his glory. Or elsewhere, Paul writes that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, united to him. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And yet we continue in sin. We leave our Bibles closed and instead of hearing from him and pouring out our lives, we pour out our lives for other things, things that will not last, things that cannot hear, that cannot speak, that will not care when we are gone. And we are God's vessels being used in that same way. We do the same thing. The only other place where the finger of God writes is in the Ten Commandments. It says that he inscribed them with his finger. When he tells us how to live, not to earn salvation. The Ten Commandments were never about that. The law has never been about that. He gives it after he redeems them. He says, here's how to live as my people. But how often do we fail and we don't even care? And as Christians, we might even use the very blood of Christ to excuse our sin. To act as though it's not a big deal. We're forgiven. It's covered. I'm cleansed. Without ever truly turning from it. It's what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. He says, it's the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. 
Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And when we're okay with cheap grace, when we ignore the finger, what the finger of God has written, God shows that he has not forgotten how to write as he gives a loving warning of judgment. To call us back. To warn us that we might not go that way. We've seen what Belshazzar knew and what he did. Finally, we see what God has done. We see the message and the interpretation in verse, starting verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, which means numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, which means weighed. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. It's the singular of the word parson. If you're looking at the difference there. And it also sounds like the word Persia. But it means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It says it's over. You have lifted yourself up. You think you're a big deal but I put you on the scales and you're a lightweight. You're a phony. You chaff in the wind. You see the result in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. His sin had consequences. God brought him down. God will humble the proud. But we don't know how it's going to play out. God worked on Nebuchadnezzar for 40 years and then restored him. Belshazzar knew all of this but didn't care. And when God humbled him, it was final. He was partying, oblivious to the judgment he was about to face that very night. The question for us really is whether we will wait for God to humble us or whether we will humble ourselves. Peter tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. He loves you. He loves you enough to warn you of the consequences of sin so that you might humble yourself and he might not have to bring that judgment. Will you heed that warning? Don't delay. Only God knows how much time you have left. 
as Belshazzar learned, despite how invincible you might think you are, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. If we're honest, we'll see that we're really not any better than Belshazzar. So why do we deserve any different? The truth is that we don't. Not in and of ourselves. We deserve punishment for our sins. If God put us on the scales, we would be found wanting. But God has provided a way out. That if you will turn from your sins and trust Jesus, he will take the judgment you deserve. So we see, as we turn to the Lord's table, this is an opportunity to view this warning once again, this warning written in the blood of Christ. This is what we deserve. God is gracious in showing us. God will not be mocked. He will not let sin slide. He is a just and righteous God. He is holy. And he is also merciful. Here we see justice and mercy meet. Where Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, took on humanity. The king who reigns from heaven gave himself so that all who trust in him will never experience the wrath of God. God. 